Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Episode 283, The Call of the Wild, The Paranormal World of Jack London. Wendy, when you think of turn of the 19th, so actually turn of the 20th century author, Jack London, what do you think of? Well, of course, I always think of dogs. Yeah, that's that's the first thing you think of. (laughs) Because I think we read White Fang, like in middle school or something like that. Oh, yeah. So, and then, of course, The Call of the Wild which is going to be a movie soon, I understand, Right, coming out. My favorite meme so far is with uh, Harrison Ford and the dog from The Call of the Wild. Buck. Buck. <laughs> and But you see, it's like a picture from the set of Harrison Ford like hugging the dog. Aww. And the meme says, uh, when the shrooms wear off and realize <laughs> that you're not like an intergalactic space pirate with a Wookiee. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's that hilarious. Yeah, I thought that was a good one. Pretty Just, good thinking uh the old man anyway so oh well that that clarifies my question about which character was harrison ford gonna play because i was wondering if he was gonna portray buck <laughs> right <laughs> he just runs around on all Kinda fours like, like the new cats movie oh yeah you know, they have the people all dressed up like looking. cats yeah but no it sounds like he's actually gonna be human okay Bye. well he's gonna be the i mean there's one character in call of the wild that's not completely cruel to animals right right but you know, every time you think about Jack London, you think about the Yukon, you think about the gold rush, um, which seems like a very unique part of American history, at least. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, now when people, I guess, I guess there's a gold rush in technology, everybody moving out to Silicon Valley or whatever, right? you know, there's gold rushes in there, but you need some kind of brains to do that. Right. I mean, for the the Yukon gold rush, you just had to know how to survive, basically, mm-hmm. and not, like enough to get up there, and then of course how to pan for gold or whatever, right? And find the right <laughs> spots. But it didn't take a special. I mean, I guess survival is a skill in those days, but you know, it's not like you're just hopping on the highway and cruising on up there. But right. But yeah, you didn't need to know how to program a to code an app or something. Like right. That. No, you just go there. You have to do how to do a pan, and you probably have to be able to eat and figure out what you do in the cold. Which is my favorite Jack London story, which is to build a fire. Oh yeah. And if you so spoilers for the ending of this one. Uh-oh. Uh the guy, he's uh an arrogant person that thinks that he knows how to handle that Alaskan cold. <laughs> you he know? thinks, huh? He thinks. And then all of a sudden things go wrong and he's desperate to build a fire. And it doesn't work out well for him. So his arrogance backfires and then um dun, dun, dun. right and then he freezes to death <laughs> but i did not realize that we were you know researching jack london because the upcoming movie call of the wild and like i wonder if anything paranormal happened in jack london's time or anything he was interested in stuff like that yeah but looking into it find out that the original version of to build a fire was a children's story and he pulls out in the end he builds the fire and he's saved and he rewrote it with an unhappier ending. Ah, a more adult ending, huh? Yeah, so something <laughs> Not as, as more friendly. like a warning. You know, the kid in the kid friendly, the, the guy pulls through. So the thing is, if you want a happy ending to build a fire, it's actually there. You can find it. Like the version we read in grades or in uh, junior high or whatever um, is <laughs> is a downer. But if you want a happy version of to build a fire, he made one. And you don't realize how uh, prolific these guys were. Yeah. 
when they were being paid by the word. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Jack London, I just thought he wrote a few books about the Yukon and stuff like that. But when you find out that he's written, you know, hundreds of stories and all different kinds of stories, not just adventure stories with Charlton Heston or Harrison Mm -hmm. Ford or things, but um, even science fiction. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Yeah, it was fun actually learning more about him as a person and uh, because he was like one of the literary rock stars and he actually was able to get wealthy while he was still alive. Right. So that didn't happen for a lot of people. No, as compared to someone like H.P. Lovecraft, who lived at around the same time, except H.P. Lovecraft was a little bit later, a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poe was pr- similar too, right? Like he didn't... Oh, Poe didn't have anything. Yeah, po- he was he was Poe. <laughs> right. Poe was Poe. Um, and and Poe was back in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. But um, Poe had to make most of his money as a literary critic. <laughs> so the person, as we think of, as one of the most famous write, famous American writers of all time. Right. Just wasting his time reading other people's stuff. <laughs> in, right. In his life, he was reading other people's stuff, critiquing it, and drinking himself to death. Yeah. While Jack London was at least writing his own stuff. And drinking himself, himself to death. death. <laughs> well, as well. So the thing is, he does have some interesting uh, paranormal connections. But Wendy, what do you think is the most interesting non-paranormal part of his life? Well, I think... To me, just I was shocked to see what a short life he had. Sure. And how much he did in that short life. Because his biography just goes on and on and on. And it's almost like he's lived the adventurous lives of three ten people, men, you know? You know? Yeah. yeah. And when he was a young boy, he was really inspired by the reading that he did. So he went to the library and just read everything possible. And he was totally enamored by the adventurous, romantic lifestyle of like leaving town and living on the sea or, or, you know, heading up north or just, he was just obsessed with that. And then he went ahead and when he was old enough, he did it. Right. (laughs) So I guess, yeah, I think that that was just the biggest thing that I learned about it was just how much he packed in because he only lived to 40. Right. Age 40. So so. if he was our age, he we. He'd be dead. Done. Yeah. Like, that's it. We have three years on him, and I have never been an oyster pirate. Right. And I've never fought in a war or spent a month in prison. (laughs) Right. Okay. Number one, if you guys don't know what an oyster pirate is, Mm. it's one of my favorite new kinds of pirates. so weird. And so... What's a little, I mean, because the thing is, there were oyster poachers in San Francisco Bay, right? Yeah. And what would they do? Like, wh- how could you How could you poach oysters? It sounds really weird, but apparently the oysters that were native to San Francisco Bay, mm-hmm. like, weren't super tasty. They were kind of small and, you know, puny compared to, like, the ones that would be brought in from other areas. So up towards Seattle or, like, even, they'd even bring them in from the East Coast once, the, like, the railroads were in and stuff. Sure. So people started taking these other oysters from out of the area and then like farming them in San Francisco Bay. Okay. And at night, these oyster pirates would sweep through and just steal the good oysters. And then they'd sell them at the market the next day for a fraction of the price of their value or whatever, because sure. they stole them. So <laughs> right, they didn't care. no investment there. But yeah, so because the, the San Francisco Bay is a public area, mm-hmm. It was just a lot less... Sure, nobody's going to shoot you for just going and finding oysters in the bay in the middle of the night. And it was a lot of work for law enforcement to go and try to, you know, keep an eye on these things. So they kind of... Right, they didn't have speedboats or anything. Yeah, and they didn't, you know, it sounded like they didn't actually care that much because it was like a trade that made the the common people really happy because they got affordable oysters. (laughs) Right. But, you know, I, what I think about interesting about this is that that's his first job. He's 15 years old. Yeah. You know, when I think about my first job, 
you know, was like a bus boy at a restaurant or <laughs> nice. whatever, and just like cl- like making sure that people had water and stuff. Yeah. His first, so when you say a life of adventure, his first job oh, is man. a pirate. Yeah. Like he doesn't even, he's not a pirate apprentice. He's not like yeah. a pirate, like not like an introductory pirate. He didn't go to pirate school. He's just like, screw it. I'm going to find some oysters yeah. and I'm going to do that. And he was on this ship with these rough, rough men that were like, you know, <laughs> right. they were just brutal. And, and he was exposed to lots and lots of like drinking and, you know, the pirate's life. <laughs> Basically, and you. And speaking of drinking, I and mean, when you said that um, you were working on his autobiography, John Barleycorn, he mentions that the first time he actually got drunk was when. Yeah, he was five years old. So this book is actually, and I'm just part way through it, but it's very interesting. It's a memoir of all of his history with alcohol. Okay. So it starts, you know, and he just tells all the experiences of his mm-hmm. first experience, and he was bringing a bucket of beer to his dad or something like that. And he just had some, he, he, he well, you know, he, as a five year old, he said, well, this stuff must be really good. Cause the adults love it so much, but they won't let us have it. So it's really valuable. And he just, you know, sat and drank and he hated the taste of it. But he said his little five-year-old mind was like, well, the good taste must come later because oh, grownups man. love it so much. Right. I know it's super sad and it gets worse from there, but but it's interesting because he That just, happened to me as a freshman in college. I was like, I was going to make myself like beer. <laughs> yeah. And to acquire, acquire a taste, yeah, I you really the do taste have to. Through sucking it down. Like so that. he talks throughout the thing about how he really despised alcohol and the taste of it. But what he loved was hanging out with these characters that were sailors and pirates and mm-hmm. hearing their stories of adventure. So he found that hanging out in the tavern was like the place to get all those great stories. Well, sure. And so he would drink just because he wanted to, you know, feel included. And, right. But he, he just said how he hated it and he preferred candy. So that's his peer <laughs> that's his peer pressure or whatever. Basically, yeah. And these are new peers. Like, he's going down. It's like his pressure is to actually go down in social classes. That, <laughs> I know. Um, it's really sad. So John Ballycorn, the term comes from a British mm, folk song. Yeah. John Ballycorn is a personification of... Uh, barley and the alcohol beverages made from it, beer, whiskey, things like that. And then he suffers indignities. And, and the whole point is John, the song about John Barley, Barleycorn is that if it's a guy that's being put through the process of being made into alcohol, like the, like Barley is. Right. Anyway, it's a funny song. Um, Fermented. A lot of people have done renditions of it. Uh, 1970 album by Ben Traffic. That's Steve Winwood. That was his band. Uh, their album was called... Uh, John Barleycorn must die. Uh, Jethro Tull's done a version of it. Um, Fairport Convention and a whole oh, yeah, tons bu- of people. Yeah, and a whole, oh, even Joe Walsh performed a song live. <laughs> and you know that uh, Joe Walsh has probably been John Barleycorn on occasion, um, at least back in the day before he went through his, his twelve steps. But yeah. so anyway, so Jack London has this adventurous life starting out. Yes. You know, he's fifteen. He's done. He's by the time he's eighteen, he goes to jail. Yeah, well, and he started off like he was working in, you know, he's a paper boy or, or a newsboy, I guess. And right. then he was in a cannery and he just hated the cannery so much. He was just like, I don't care. I'm, you know, he, he literally just saved enough to buy a boat because the second he had enough, he went and he said, I don't care if I'm a, uh, an oyster pirate, if I get caught and I go to jail. Well, hey, those prisoners don't work as many hours as I do. They're not trapped in this like, you know, right. Well, they are, I guess in a way, but (laughs) they're not trapped and treated like animals, you know, having to work and just do the assembly line stuff that he was doing. So to him, it was like 
the cannery job was like the ultimate worst the thing. Absolute worst thing. He would rather be in prison than work in that yeah, cannery. Yeah, yeah. Or take a risk, you know? And he just said like, screw this, I'm out. Like All right. <laughs> and he was only like 14 or something when he did that. So Well, what I think is interesting here is when you, you think about how he feels about the cannery and then you think about the writings that he did, because in addition to his fiction, he was also an activist for socialism. Mm-hmm. And so not wanting to work is kind of the socialist <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> nice. And so, uh, it's, so just an interesting thing that you see these early experiences later shape his writings yeah. and his beliefs. And he had some very, very 19th century beliefs that we'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> but he's born in 1876. Uh, he dies in 1916. And so in 40 years, he packs a lot of living and a lot of writing. And that's why we're still reading him today. Yeah. And going to see a movie with Harrison Ford coming right. out of the grave or whatever. It's, uh, how old is Harrison Ford? Uh, I don't know. I want to say like 70. I think he's, I think he's like 77. Whoa, what? No. Harrison Ford is 77. I caught it. July 13th, 1942. I thought the thing is he's supposed to make another Indiana Jones movie. Oh my gosh. They better get on that. Yeah. They better get on it before he's it. Um, so yeah, so Harrison Ford co- like kind of come out. Yeah. He's 77. Wow. He was 30 when Star Wars came out and Star Wars now came out 43 oh. years ago, everybody. Yeah. Shh. Okay. So, um, why did Jack London pack so much into his life? And we could start out with his mother there, mm. Flora Wellman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Flora Wellman was described as a exceptionally attractive child. Okay. She, uh, so, so Flora Wellman, she grew up in Ohio. Um, she's born uh, in the early part of the 19th century. And, you know, so... She's an exceptionally attractive child, but yet she has a strange fever when she's five years old. And the strange fever stunts her growth. So she never even hits five feet tall, which, I mean, short women run in my family. So that's not, I think women, like five feet tall women, like, well, that's pretty tall for the women (laughs) in my family. Um, Never hits five feet tall. And she goes bald. Hmm. So she has to wear a a wig for most of her life. Now, she comes from a well-to-do family that has a belief in spiritualism. Ooh, okay. Now we're getting getting well, warm. Right. So, I mean, Flora is interested in all of the things when you think about a well-to-do woman in the 19th century. She's interested in women's suffrage, women's rights, abolition. Yeah. And what comes with all these, what we think of as being on the whatever right side of history or whatever is also spiritualism. Mm-hmm. So that that, that kind of comes with the package. The people that believed in <laughs> all right. of those women's things, that in suffrage and women's rights, were also spiritualists. And Flora Wellman is uh, no different. In fact, she's not just a spiritualist that goes to seances. Flora holds seances. Wow. And she does this when she gets out to San Francisco. She runs away from Ohio, eventually uh, you know, makes it out to the West Coast, and there she meets William Cheney, who just so happens to be like the father of American astrology. Oh, man. It's a match made in the heavens. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> so what's interesting about this is that he also was somebody that served some time in jail. William Cheney is an interesting character in his own right. Um, he learns astrology in New York City from this guy named Luke Broughton. And Luke kind of... He built the astrological community in the United States, and he built it in New York. But there's even an anti-astrology crusade in New York. Whoa. 
where people are probably like, this stuff is crazy. Yeah, it's devil work, probably, right? Devil, <laughs> I mean, the same kind of thing. It's it's fortune telling. But also, it's, I mean, besides that, it might be, they might think it's satanic in nature. It's uh-huh. all. It's also fooling people. It's also saying like, because we look at the uh, our horoscope, and the horoscopes are written so broadly. Yeah. <laughs> that you can read any day, any horoscope. Something good is going to happen to you later like, today, Mike. Ooh, yes. And even if something bad happens, I'll look back and be like, well, oh. but I did get that free burrito or something like that. You know, I, I did stop by the restaurant and it was my name on the business card day or whatever. And so I got a free lunch. So like even Never a bad thing, even when something happens, you can always find something in your horoscope that you can relate to. And that's kind of how they're written. But if you were going to see a personal astrologer, as what these guys were doing, and they were using the stars to kind of answer your questions, much like people go see a psychic. Right. That's a different kind of thing. Or a palm reader or, you know, any kind of... So you go see an astrologer and you say, like William Cheney, and you go say like, okay, what's, you know, what kind of decision should I make? Or they're like, oh, on this day, you will get a large fortune. What do the stars say about this? Right. And then the stars tell you the wrong thing. <laughs> then what happens is, so then even the New York newspaper then decides to have a crusade against astrology. And William Cheney spent six months in jail. And after that, he gets out of town. So after he gets released from jail, he moves to the West Coast. And that's where um, he meets Flora Wellman. But the thing is, is that he was already married what? in New York. Yeah. Uh-oh. So he, he this... By the time he meets Flora Wellman, he's on his fourth wife. Whoa, William. Right. And the thing is, is that he gets married to Flora Wellman, but then he does get divorced from her, and he gets divorced from her and leaves her while she is pregnant with who would become Jack London. Wow, All right? guy. Right. And the thing is, is that he leaves her, and she tries to kill herself. Aww. And right, not just tries to kill herself, but uh, she first tries to um, take laudanum. She overdoses on laudanum, oh which gosh. is like a painkiller kind of yeah. thing. And when that fails, she tries to shoot herself in the head, oh. but the gun malfunctions. Oh, man. So immediately, I mean, this is in the San Francisco Chronicle, mm-hmm. and it's in the June 4th, 1874 edition of the San Francisco Chronicle, and the headline is, A Discarded Wife. Oh, my gosh. Right. That is so sad. And then... So what happens, because the thing is, because William Cheney leaves her and he goes, I've never been able to get my other wives pregnant. So, so I am, I am not me. Yeah. So he's like, oh, he's like, man. I'm sterile. There's no chance it can be my kid. That's rough. And then that's why she, and he leaves her. She tries to kill himself. And then um, because this is in the newspaper, everybody starts hating William Cheney because hmm. obviously they think he's a bastard. Yeah, he sounds like a jerk. Right, he totally sounds like a jerk. And then he runs away and moves to Chicago. And when people contact and ask him about in the future, uh, he's like, I am not uh, I am not Jack London's father. You know, he's like, she had other lovers than I did. Even though, I mean, I don't know. She's just this little lady. This little ball, you think this little yeah. bald lady's getting around? I mean, <laughs> well, we don't, we don't know. That's true. We're making judgments. But, but he was married to her. Absolutely. And... Um, you know, he writes a very well-known text called Cheney's Primer of Astrology in American Urania. And Urania refers to the study of the stars. Urania was like the goddess of astronomy in mm. Greece. So, you know, it's like weird. It's like, 
what's urania it's got nothing to do with what it sounds like it's like it's not urania the urologist or anything like that it's urania has to do with the study of astronomy and then um he gets married again to a woman named daisy and he begins a magazine he calls the daisy jane after his wife she didn't have any kids did she I, well, I, you know, it doesn't I really say, hope not. but, um, his, he, he's a famous astrologer and he also was a fairly scandalous person because yeah. he left, uh, Jack London's mother, Flora Wellman. And so, you know, F- Flora Wellman, uh, then proceeds to, um, like give Jack to a foster mother for a while, Virginia Prentice, mm-hmm. who is a former slave and she becomes like Jack's foster mother while, um, like Flora Wellman is kind of going some crazy. Recovery. Yeah. yeah. Um, she goes a little crazy for a while. Uh, it's the quote is she lost her mind. Um, oh man. And, and the thing is now Flora Wellman, she was not only conducting seances and said that she could talk to the dead. She was also doing spirit possession. Hmm. So Jack London's mother believed that she was possessed by the spirit of Black Hawk. Uh, I mean, and Black Hawk is a very famous Indian. I mean, a lot of people probably heard of Black Hawk because they had the whole like Black Hawk Wars. Right. And uh, Abe Lincoln fought in the Black Hawk War. And Black Hawk is, he's not necessarily an Indian chief because he never was like a proper like hereditary chief. Oh, okay. But he just became a leader in when the Indians were rebelling against all of the European settlers coming into the Midwest, Mm -hmm. coming into Illinois and coming into Wisconsin. And so he's fighting in the, uh, the early 1800s against the American settlers. And the thing is, is that just like there's sides of things today, uh, where there's sides of political battles, there were people in the United States that thought what we were doing to the Indians wasn't a great thing. <laughs> yeah. And there were people who thought it, you know, right. manifest destiny. You know, mm-hmm. let's go all the way. We push America all the way to the sea. And in 1833, Black Hawk tells his life story uh, to like a government interpreter. And they put out this autobiography, the autobiography of Maka Taimi Shaki Kayak or Blackhawk, embracing the traditions of his nation, various wars in which he has been engaged, and his account of the cause and the general history of the Blackhawk War of 1832, his surrender and travels to the United States. That is the longest book title I've ever heard. That is a very long title. That is one book title there. (laughs) And, you know, it's funny. So they have this, so this book comes out, and this is what makes people fascinated with Blackhawk, because he's somebody who fought against uh, the American settlers, and then people found a um, inspiration in that. Mm-hmm. So you know, Blackhawk becomes this famous chief. And they name a ton of things after Blackhawk: the Chicago Blackhawks, right? <laughs> obviously, um, the, there's a Blackhawk helicopter, um, right? They made the movie Blackhawk Down. Yeah. Four U.S. Navy vessels are named the USS Blackhawk. There's, there's a college, there's a middle school. <laughs> right. The Blackhawk stuff is everywhere. And yeah. it's because people had this great respect for this uh, Indian chief or this Indian leader, mm-hmm. not necessarily a, like sure. when we think of somebody as a traditional chief. And I'm trying to get that stuff right there. Yeah. But what's interesting is Flora Wellman's not the only one who like channels the spirit of Blackhawk. Oh. And in fact, um, our friend Ursula Bielski from Chicago Hauntings just wrote a whole article oh, about cool. Blackhawk last year. And we'll so, to link that. Um, 
So what happened, I'll let me quote her here. In New Orleans, members of local black churches have for a century been calling on the spirit of Chief Blackhawk for aid, for advice, for money in troubled times. He has become an essential patron saint of the Crescent City desperate, with votive candles, oils, and other sacramentals sold to help along the prayers of his faithful. They will say things like the chant, Blackhawk is a watchman. He will fight your battles. And so there even ends up being another medium named Leafy Anderson from Chicago, and Leafy Anderson's actually born in Baraboo, Wisconsin, oh, wow. um, which is maybe a half an hour from where we are right now. Yeah. So I feel the spirit of Leafy Anderson <laughs> in me. But, you know, she would tell people, so she has a spiritualist church and she mainly has like black congregants, but she starts getting white congregants too. Um, but it's, they're saying that um, Black Hawk will fight your battles. Black Hawk's a saint. She would say, he will fight your battles. He's on the wall. And you're like... Okay, that's an, that's an interesting thing. Like, why are we all of a sudden praying the Blackhawk? Hmm. But this becomes a, you know, she starts a spiritualist church that even gets led on um, after her death, the Temple of the Innocent Blood. Whoa, that's kind of a <laughs> yeah <laughs> strange name. <laughs> right. And so um, she's born in Wisconsin. She lives in Illinois for a while and then moves the... Uh, to the the Temple of the Innocent Blood down in New Orleans in the 1920s. And they have spirit guides and their worship services and everything that that conjure and get possessed by the spirit of Black Hawk. So Flora Wellman's Wellman's doing this 50 years beforehand. So there is this tradition of um, being possessed by the spirit of Black Hawk. And I think that's a a pretty interesting... That's something I'd never heard of before. Mm -hmm. That, you know... Um, that that was something, and Jack London's mother did it. Now, Jack London, in his writing and talking to people, he's a very, I mean, he's an atheist. He's a very famous atheist. And he writes a lot about his philosophy, and he's influenced by a lot of atheist writers. And it's just interesting that he came from two people that are just about as far from atheists as you can be. Yeah, really, for sure. So, I mean, what happens after she starts feeling a little better? Um she marries John London, who's a Civil War veteran, and uh, he's, he's got two young daughters. He's a widower, and so he's a widower. She's a spurned woman, <laughs> yeah. a famously spurned woman, right. and uh, when Jack is a couple of years old, uh, she marries John London, where Jack took his name, and so they struggle. They're poor. Um, Flora, who's you know who had a well-to-do life back in Ohio, uh, she's got to teach piano and bake bread in order to make money. Mm. And um, she does her uh, se- seances and stuff sometimes to also earn a little extra. And it's funny because Jack is very embarrassed by her seances. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see when you talk about rebellion, that's the first thing you rebel against: your parents' crazy jobs. Uh huh. Especially your dad that hates you and never uh, even acknowledges that you're his son. Yeah. So, um, I mean, starting off, Jack London has a, you know, a very interesting, uh, he's raised by a couple of very interesting people. And and didn't he like try to reach out to his, his birth father? Yes. He tries to get, re- like he, he tries to reach out to William Cheney. Yeah. And William Cheney even still disowns him at that point. And just. Breaks his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it says like, right. It says like he never really recovered from the fact that his mm. father, because Jack London, I mean, he's a sensitive guy, but he's almost, even though he's not the picture of macho that we think like Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> you know, somebody in that same kind of mm-hmm. thing, writing adventure stories, going and living the adventure yourself. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's Jack London. He went to, he not just write about the Yukon. Right. You know, he went to the Yukon. He he's did obsessed it. with the adventure. And he's also, you know, in that John Barleycorn book, like as a child, he's very fascinated by the rites of passage. Like, oh, men hang out together in a bar and drink together. And that that's a man thing to do. And so I'm going to go and do that. And I'm going to show them that I am a man, you know, like he's very uh, obsessed with that, those rituals and things like that. And you can kind of see why. And I know we're psychoanalyzing someone a hundred years after they're dead. <laughs> it's true. Um, I mean, but that's what a podcast is for, right? It's about talking about these things. But when you think about, so Jack London, his real father abandons him. His stepfather is lame from the war and can't work. And so he's looking for examples of masculinity, and he finds it in these rites of passage. Well, where do the men hang out? The men hang out at the bar after they're done getting off the ship kind of thing. And so that's what he seeks for himself. And, I mean, that's what he does. I mean, he isn't just an author of fiction. He also is a reporter. He He goes to Japan you know, he goes to Japan to report on the uh, the Russo-Japanese War. It's wild. And then, so he's in Japan for a while, and he reports on the Japanese side, and then he wants to go, and then he goes to Russia and reports on the Russian side. And so he goes off into war zones. He goes off into the Yukon. And then, like in his personal life, you know, he never, up until a certain point, um, he doesn't find a soulmate kind of thing. And even says, like, he, you know, doesn't believe in romance or whatever. And he decides to get married to his friend, not because he's a practical thing. Not to because do. he loves her, because, but he thought they could make robust children. <laughs> I believe we, we can make, make us some strong kids. We can make us some strong children. And so um, he does that. And they get married for a little while. But then he meets a woman who is as adventurous as he is. Jackie falls in love. Yes. Um, Charmian London is, uh, that's who it is. And she joins Jack on his adventures. And it starts in 1905 is when they meet. And And so he drops the wife of convenience. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. But the thing is, by this point, he's already fairly wealthy. Yeah. So when you talk about Jack London as a rock star. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't penniless like Edgar Allan Poe, like dying in a gutter. He wasn't like living off inheritances, things like that, like H.P. Lovecraft. Or even we think of more modern writers, you think of guys like um, who's the writer that did Blade Runner and has so many so many of his books have mm. been adapted after his death. Oh, we had a whole episode about yeah. him. Uh, oh yeah, Philip um, K. Dick. Uh, thank you. Yes. So Philip K. Dick, like now he'd be a millionaire. You know, it's it's kind of like how George R. Martin. So until George R. Like George R. Martin's like 70 now, right? Yeah. But he lived a long life just making the kind of regular living. Yeah, just. Being a writer, not through, you know, cranking out books, and then all of a sudden in his sixties, he becomes world. I mean, he already was famous and stuff, and he already had worked in Hollywood as a script editor and things. But it took until he wasn't a superstar writer until Game of Thrones happened, and then all of a sudden in his sixties, he has all the money he wants. Right, and so you think about that. uh, I mean, Jack London was not that old when he started making a good deal of money. Right. And isn't it something like he was at the right place at the right time? Because that's when they finally were able to like mass print books. Right. The journals, like the monthly or whatever, periodical type mm-hmm. journals where they would hire writers to do, you know, either continuing series or short stories or that kind of thing. And he was just determined to make money off of writing because he sure. didn't want to work in a cannery, you know. <laughs> right. And so the the I'm sure his hard work and dedication toward that, but timed with that aspect of the publishing world of that becoming a popular thing, like the regular journals with that original writing in it, 
Like, he was just in the perfect place to succeed. And then it happens. And then, like, so he makes the equivalent. Like, I mean, in his 20s or something, he makes the equivalent of writing, like, $77,000 of his story or something like that. So it's something silly. Like, he sells a story and it's a whole year worth of his life paid for. Right. And this then becomes his life. And so he gets actually rich while he's alive. And very young. Right. And so you can see getting rich while young. I mean, even Justin Bieber was just talking about how he had to deal with his demons. Um, but unfortunately, we still have Justin Bieber and we don't have Jack London. No. So the thing is, he had built this ranch called like the Wolf House. And so uh, he, he did have a thing for wolves, didn't he? he man, he loved wolves. And so he's building this, uh, like this mansion because he's going to call the Wolf House. And he's, it's in 1913 and him and Charmian were going to move into it. And, like, right before they're about to move into it, it burns to the ground. Oh, tragedy. Right. And so he's got, like, a little house on the ranch, but it's not, like, the, the mansion right, that he the was... dream house. It wasn't the wolf house that he was going to build. <laughs> and oh. um, so what happens is, by 1916, uh, Jack London, his health is kind of failing. And then uh, he's just, he's hanging out on his own you know, on his own little house on the ranch and then passes away as he's 40 years old. Aww. And so Jack dies. And it's not super clear what he died on because yeah. you can say that he drank himself to death because he, he obviously he has struggles with alcohol in his life. But so it could have been some kind of liver failure. But also, didn't he have a bunch of crazy diseases when he was younger? Yeah, well, when he went up to the Yukon in the, in the gold hunt, mm-hmm. <laughs> he, uh, well, for one thing, he got scurvy. All right. So it's hard to come back from scurvy. Yeah. Well, it, it affects you because you, you get like your gums recede and then that opens you up to all kinds of oh, infection. God. And and if you guys want to see what scurvy looks like, a really good demonstration of what scurvy looks like, watch oh, no. The Terror. Oh, gosh. Uh, that was from Dan Simmons' book about the uh, Franklin, the doomed Franklin expedition of 1842. And it's a very good and horrifying visual um, mm. So you know, we just hear, oh, he gets the scurvy, and you think they're just bow, yeah, like bow-legged they're, they're or whatever, turning yellow or whatever, right? right. Yeah, no, you. I mean, it's it's horrific. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, it's in, in addition to that, it said that he uh, picked up unspecified tropical infections and diseases, including yaws. And oh man, the, yaws is the worst. Yeah, I don't. Yaw, want the yaws. I think I think I saw that band. <laughs> that sounds nasty. A tropical infection of the skin, bones, and joints caused by a bacteria. Anyway, gross. Like skin wounds and all that kind of stuff the world is terrifying it is but then he it just said when he was at the time of his death he was suffering from all kinds of things like including various symptoms from diseases he had and said he was on morphine so i mean it could have been like a self-induced just from too much right the thing is he's probably drinking relief and you know if he's drinking if he's taking morphine if he's all these kind of things then maybe his body just shuts down or like when you're on morphine um like sometimes your body forgets to keep working. Yeah. And I mean that's the whole opiate problem. It's said that he um he suffered from dysentery, late stage alcoholism and uremia. God. So, Dysent- I mean, dysentery so he's crapping oh, his pants, his liver hurts. Poor guy. Whatever I mean, uremia is, yeah. if it's anything like urania, it's either in the stars, if it's anything like urologist, it's yeah. in Johnson. So forget, I'm oh. sorry. Sorry about that, Jack London. It sounds like he had a bad end. But yeah, and he, they buried his ashes right there on site by the wolf pack. I mean, the wolf house. The, by the wolf house. And 
Interestingly enough, his widow, Charmian, she sees his ghost just a few months after... Um, oh, in the house? Yeah. In the cabin yeah. or whatever? So she writes in her That's memoirs, cool. As clearly as I had ever looked upon the man, I saw Jack stepping blithely in the green domain. That They call that the field in front of the ranch house was the green domain. Whistling comradely to the unmistakable friend shadowing his heel, Peggy the Beloved, our small canine Irish saint. So she had visions of Jack and his dog after he had passed away. And you can all go see it at the Jack London State Historic Park. And you can see the ruins of Wolf House. Cool, cool. I'm definitely going to visit that. Oh, yeah. I totally want to see it. And people have seen... Uh, Jack's spirit. They've, se- I mean, they've seen a ghost there that they think uh. is Jack London, um, at in the ruins of the Wolf House. It says on this, um, in the De- Jeff Dwyer's Ghost Hunter's Guide to California's Wine Country, which sounds pleasant. Last time I went to California's Wine Country, I just drank a ton of wine. <laughs> I didn't, um, just went up the highway and just. Uh, and went from winery to winery. You didn't I didn't do the wine train. I didn't think about. I wanted to do the wine train. <laughs> Actually, funny enough, last time I was in wine country, we stayed in uh, uh, the Jack London Suite oh, at the hotel we were in. Nice. Yeah. You didn't see him though. I did not see him, but I, I did. They, there was a spirit there. Of, there was a bottle of wine that was in the fridge. <laughs> there was right. Someone had left. So the, the oh. spirit of Jack London was there because you got <laughs> uremia. <laughs> oh, no. But. People have heard voices of calling out, the sound of metal hammers striking rock, footsteps, and even apparitions in the Mm. foyer in the Great Hall of the Ruins. Um, What I think is super interesting about the Wolf House, though, is it's a a place he never lived. So in real life, so if you think it's some kind of, if if you think it's a recording... If you would say well, it's a, a residual haunting, yeah. Jack London never lived there. Although it was something that he was working hard on, right? You know, right. It was kind of like his dream house. Mm-hmm. So people pour a lot of energy and passion right. into that. And who knows? He Maybe while they were building it, he would walk through. You sure. Know. You're right. I mean, if you hear the sound of metal hammers striking rock, that yeah, that's, sounds that's like, I mean, <laughs> oh, I didn't even think about that. I thought it was people working on the house. Oh, but if people people hear the rock. sound of the Klondike, oh, that's great. <laughs> people hear the gold rush. Yeah, it's, it's like all of his little various chapters of his life kind of happening as and, apparitions. And that would be an interesting thing because he was very um, atheistic, even though he wrote some of his uh, stories. If you go to... Um, like some of the philosophy and the things that he believes in. Now, the people that Jack London are inspired by, um, some of them are problematic today. Yeah. Uh, you could say Herbert Spencer. He's the guy that uh, gave us the phrase survival of the fit. Ah, okay. Um, you know, Herbert Spencer is very um, influenced by Charles Darwin. And evolution. And so when you think of this idea as evolution, I mean, Charles Darwin is studying how um, animals adapt to the environment and then the ad- adaptation happens and their children and things like that. Um, but Herbert Spencer goes on and they do more things like social evolution, you know, natural selection of not just uh, humans Physical in general properties, right? But yeah. natural selection of like races. Right. So Herbert Spencer is kind of like a eugenics guy okay. where, you know, it, eugenics is that idea that there is a quote unquote science of um, you try to weed out right. the weak or you weed out, you know, you weed out the, the weaker races yeah. or you weed out people with uh, any kind of 
uh, you know, mental disease or disabled people. And, you know, you think that eugenics is a thing of the past, right? And then you see that Iceland has eliminated Down syndrome. Wow. And you're like, well, that, did they find a cure? No. Uh, No. (laughs) So it's little thing. These, uh, like, so eugenics is still with us today in certain kind of things, but nobody would talk about it like that. But Jack London is a eugenicist. He's like, yes, I mean, he's all manly, manly. He's like, we got to weed out the weaker people and things like that because they got to be strong. Even though, I mean, would he consider himself strong because he was prone to diseases and all that kind of stuff? But I mean, this is all, when we think about the world of the Victorian age, he's also influenced by uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. In fact, he says that um, Nietzsche, I've been more stimulated by Nietzsche than by any other writer in the world. He considered himself an admirer, but also a, quote, intellectual enemy, unquote, huh. because um, Nietzsche is this idea of the ubermensch, oh, yeah. the Superman who is, and you know, all of this is eventually taken by the Nazis and used as propaganda, mm-hmm. whether it's eugenics and, uh, you know, how the Nazis killed other races in addition to killing people who had disabilities and all that kind of thing. And also this idea of they're trying to create the ubermensch, the Superman that is intellectually strong and physically strong. Right. So this, this what in the past would be considered a Greek ideal of the man who uh, was brilliant as well as powerful. Hmm. I mean, Nietzsche writes that um, about in one of his books. And it's, it's funny that... Uh, you know, Jack London considers that because all this to kind of matches together things that he's interested in. He's interested in evolution. He's interested in, you know, becoming super intelligent, super strong, all these kind of things like Jack London wants to be an ubermensch. But instead of being like the, the ubermensch that's cruel towards other people, he believes that he can be the socialist Superman mm. is something that he talks about in that uh, you can achieve these kind of things. And you can be a superior intellect and a superior physicality while also um, not having to go to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, he's very influenced. I mean, this is also something that's popular, though, if you take like H.G. Wells is the same kind of thing. Mm. And um, it's, it's this idea that I mean, they've witnessed people be taken advantage of by corporations. They've witnessed people be worked to the bone. I mean, Jack London worked in the cannery, and he's like, I'd rather go to jail than do that again. Mm-hmm. And you have these horrific kind of um, work environments that are happening at the turn of the 20th century. I mean, think about the people working in the mines. Oh, think man. about when they, you know, when they started working on unions and they would go on strike, there would be strike breakers coming up and it wouldn't just be like pushed through the street. It would be oh, like beat yeah. the crap out of right. them. Like people would die in uh, when it was battles. in labor battles. And so he's seeing this stuff kind of happen and it's influencing his ideas. Hmm. And so um, he's a, a socialist Nietzschean, uh, kind of racist, even though he doesn't, like H.P. Lovecraft is always <laughs> taking the task for saying horrible things. Right. Jack London does talk about the difference between races, like in one of his, uh, one of his stories, The Eyes of Asia. Hmm. Um, he's like, nor white, nor Asiatic, nor European, blended misfits of outcrossed bloods. It would be awful. We couldn't forgive ourselves. He's talking about people mixing races there. Fancy it. The Anglo-Saxon staring at me from Almond. The Japanese staring at you from Anglo-Saxon eyes. Inscrutable, foreign, utterly, abysmally alien. Yeah. So, I mean, little things like that. Um, 
They don't tell you about that in junior high. But I mean, these are obviously, these are some indefensible things. But at the same time, you have, I mean, you are a victim of your time and you're going along with the beliefs. Well, another thing related to that that's kind of interesting is that his mom, when he was a little kid, like warned him that people with dark eyes, Mm -hmm. you had to comply with their wishes or they would kill you. So anytime really? he'd run into somebody Italian or, you know, the dark haired, dark eyed people, he would. Um, and when he was a little kid, one of them handed him a glass of wine and he didn't want to drink it. But he was so, so afraid of dying. He, he was like, if I don't drink it, that guy's going to kill me. Oh, man. So that was That's part of Yeah. It was like like she ingrained that into him to the point where he was just terrified of certain okay. ethnicities of people. And so. Right. And that's inflicted on him. Right. To where, of course, he's going to see that not only do you have the social Darwinism of the time, but you also have uh, his mother who's, who's putting that on him. So that's interesting. And, you know, that even gets into as he when he thinks about these different themes as he's going into his science fiction work. So, I mean, we don't read any science fiction work in school, but it sounds like we should. But yeah, that surprised me hearing yeah, about that. He's got stories like the rejuvenation of Major Rathbone, uh, where it's a youth serum makes somebody smarter. Um, Planchette. <laughs> a right? Ouija board story. A Ouija board oh sends ominous messages that come to fruition. Cool. Um, the man with the gash, a dream bandit haunts a Yukon wow. miser and cheat and materializes to murder him. Um there's stories about socialist. He's got several stories about socialist revolution, the Iron Heel, a dystopian novel predicting the rise of fascism and the obstacles to an easy socialist revolution, the Scarlet Plague, a worldwide pandemic is experienced in the San Francisco Bay Area, otherwise known as the coronavirus. Dun, dun, dun. When the world was young, a young man is haunted by a Teutonic barbarian atavism that struggles to dominate his personality. Wow. Now, he goes back to this idea of atavism more than once. Hmm. And so what I think is interesting here is that, so what is atavism? That's this idea of you can have traits from your ancestry that emerge in yourself. Oh, okay. So atavism is like genetic memory. Oh, yeah. He's in Call of the Wild. That's a very strong theme. <laughs> right. <laughs> with, with the dogs, you know, of course. Yeah. But. And the thing is, you know, Call of the Wild, particularly because we think of dogs as maybe not having a genetic memory, but they have something we don't instinct right exactly and we've always recognized instinct because a cat does not need to be taught i don't know why you just put a box of sand in your and house know to go and your there. cat will drop a deuce in it like why <laughs> oh. does the cat know how to do why does the cat know how to go to the bathroom in the sand yeah that's weird you the only like the how to how, here's how you house train your cat you really just show them you put them in the litter box and you might have to do that a couple of times when they're kittens, but within a week, it's done. Wow, that's amazing. And you're like... If only kids were that easy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but just this idea that you know animals have this instinct. Birds make a nest. Nobody ever shows a bird how to yeah, make a nest. that's amazing. And, or, or bees making the beehive. Right. There's all these things that animals do that they require absolutely no... Um, training for, whereas humans, we require training for everything. And I mean, which is why we have culture. And it's interesting that we didn't think that other animals actually had any kind of learned culture. They only had instinct. They only had atavism and genetic memory until there were these monkeys on these, in this Japanese island. And um, the monkeys, like somebody showed one monkey how to like rub his sweet potato in the salt water 
Okay. Right? So the monkey would take it so the monkey would take the sweet potato to the beach. <laughs> he would put the sweet potato in the salt water and then it would taste better. Yeah. Yeah, a little sweet and savory. And so the monkey took that back to like the monkey community. Uh-huh. And then they all started going cool. to the water and uh <laughs> like salting their potatoes. Yeah. And so that was like, I remember, um, this is just something from the late 20th century where they were teaching us a psychology class that, well, we now have seen that not only humans have culture, but an animal can have a learned culture too. And so what's the reverse? I mean, he's got this in his story before Adam, where this guy starts having memories of like the Neanderthal times. Uh, His character is like, I shall never forget the first time I saw blueberries served on the table. I had never seen blueberries before. And yet... At the sight of them, there leapt up in my mind memories of dreams wherein I'd wandered through swampy land eating my fill. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's not just that. It's in John Barleycorn. He says it too. He goes, all my austere nights of midnight oil, all the book I had read, all the wisdom I had gathered went glimmering before the ape and tiger in me. They crawled up from the abysm of my heredity, atavistic, competitive, and brutal, lustful with strength and desire to outswine the swine. Oh, man. So he feels that his desire to drink even comes from some kind of genetic memory. And, you know, this idea of genetic memory, they have it in, in games all the time. They have it in movies all the time and in science fiction. And is there any kind of scientific evidence for genetic memory where something could happen to you and then your children or children's children will then remember it? And the answer is yes. Yeah. There is evidence that something can happen to you and it will create some kind of genetic memory in your children. And... This, they haven't done this in humans yet, but um, back in 2013, uh, you get a couple of researchers at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and they start becoming interested in um, epigenetic inheritance is what they call it. We call it genetic memory. Back in Jack London's day, they called it atavism, and uh, today you would call it epigenetic inheritance. So can any of these things, can mental illness be passed down through genes? Can, you know... Because they were seeing cycles of drug addiction and psychiatric illness that if they occurred in the parent, they might often occur in the children. And there was only anecdotal evidence. So how do you, the first person, of course, or the first group, uh, obviously, you go to study when it comes to needing to study humans is mice. Mm, Oh, yeah. So what do they do? They start uh, training mice to fear the smell of acetophenin. And that's a chemical which has the scent of cherries or almonds. Mm. So what they were doing to male mice is they were putting the scent in a small chamber. So they kind of release the scent in the chamber. There's a mouse in the chamber. And then they're giving the mouse shocks, Mm -hmm. electric shocks. So eventually um, the mice start associating the scent with pain. They start shuddering even when there is no electrical shock. Oh, wow. So it's kind of like Pavlov's dog where he hears the bell, he starts salivating even when he doesn't smell the food. Before they ever had the food, though. In this case, it would be like they had never experienced that. Right. So all of a sudden, this smell starts, they they start associating with pain. Hmm. And so they go to the next generation of these mice because mice reproduce quickly. Obviously, they don't have to wait till like the kids are six or something like that. They can, you know, the mice have kids real quick and they can check them. And interestingly enough, in the journal they report, uh, Nature Neuroscience is a journal. 
And despite never having encountered acetophenone uh, in their lives, the offspring exhibit increased sensitivity when introduced to its smell, shuddering more markedly in its presence um, compared with the descendants of mice who had been conditioned to be startled by a different smell or had gone through no such conditioning. A third generation of mice, the grandkids, also inherited this reaction, as did mice conceived through in vitro fertilization with sperm from the males who were sensitized. Um, similar experiments show that the response can also be transmitted down from the mother. But what's interesting here is that they're even like test tube babying mice, and those mice are still having that fear associated with the smell. So this fear um, ends up going through their genes. And they haven't figured out the, you know, the entire kind of thing yet as to why. Um, and obviously some people are like, how does this happen? That's all crazy talk. But um, they're doing further research on it to see how certain things can pass from the parent to the child that you would think like, so, I mean, if I really hate broccoli, and let's say I eat some broccoli and right. somebody kicks my butt. What is broccoli? What, what is that? What are you doing eating some broccoli? Yeah, because over here, I'm going to kill you. And so what happens, I get my butt kicked, and all of a sudden, every time... I see broccoli or smell broccoli, I start being afraid. I'd hate for my grandchildren to that. Yeah, right. Never want broccoli. What's also interesting, though, is now... So this isn't past... Like, we think of genetic stuff as my kids will get it no matter what. But let's say you have a child, and then 10 years later, you get your butt kicked while you're eating broccoli. The next child will have that fear, and not your original... You know. <sighs> what? So it's stuff being added to your genes. That's messed up. <laughs> right. So um, what... A lot of people considered silly after the 20th century, when you get to the mid 20th century, nobody believes in atavism anymore. And that's just something, it's kind of like after World War II, nobody's like uh, eugenics, nobody like high fives. Great idea. It becomes a horrific thing. No, in fact, yeah. even um, Star Trek has this whole thing about the eugenics wars. And that's where Khan comes from in Wrath of Khan in the late 90s. We have the eugenics wars with the Ubermensch, the uh, Khan and his buddies fighting, fighting the rest of humanity. And so uh, atavism, it becomes like this idea of, well, this is just a, you know, a 19th century idea. But uh, we find out that there may be something to genetic memory. And that's an interesting thing that Jack London often featured in his work, books like John Bodycorn and Before Adam. Yeah. And uh, it was just interesting to learn so many things uh, about an author that um, I only thought of as a kind of adventure guy. Yeah, and a fiction writer. You know, and you never thought of him as such a rich, interesting person. Or actually, to tell you the truth, I thought like, okay, he was an adventure guy that drank himself to death, and he only could write like you didn't think of him as like a deep thinker, right? But and yeah. and now you see so much depth that even if you don't agree with a lot of the things he thought, yeah. um, which is, he was definitely thinking, he was definitely thinking. And I, I think we'd all be hard pressed to find somebody from the late 19th century where we'd be like, you know what, that guy, yeah. he's he's right on. Well, especially at, at such a young age too right you know like oh yeah most people do their their more serious works like in the seems like in the later years you know sure well an in, in, interesting thing though is i did read about musicians wendy so i think we might be screwed oh no that musicians have all of their hits whatever before they're 35 <gasps> or they write all their best work before they're 35 and, dun, dun, and everything dun. Dun. but they also it was with authors and musicians huh. and even bill gates wow they were saying like he kind of achieved as far as his uh, Microsoft, his contribution, stuff like that, was all done before 35. Yes, so, it's time to yes, march to the grave, Mike. It's all downhill from here is all I'm saying. <laughs> but he, I don't care. I'm still having a good time, just like Jack London. And some of his best quotes, and this goes into the song for this week, 
is he writes, it's known as London's Credo. And he says these words to his friends uh, two months before his death. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather than my spark should burn out in a brilliant blaze than it should be stifled by dry rot. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. The proper function of man is to live, not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And that's the idea behind this week's song, I'd Rather Be Ashes Than Dust. For listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. You know who I'd like to talk about Jack London with, Wendy? Who? Our Patreons. Oh, yeah, actually, I was thinking, you know, he's got a, a list of titles that would be perfect for a paranormal book club of some sort. And you know, and they're all free too, because everything yeah. is um, because everything is old. You know, everything, Yeah, he's been dead since 1916, so everything he's written is in the public domain. Project Gutenberg. Right. Just jump to Project Gutenberg, <laughs> um, and then you can look at all of Jack London's stories. But we'd love to talk to you more. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in any of the topics we talked about today, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to go over them with our Patreons, and we're going to do our February Hangout in just a couple of weeks. Yes. So for you Patreons, please look out on the Patreon website or the app, and we'll let you know when that's going to happen. And we have a shout out to our newest Patreon oh, member. Oh, how could I be remiss? Oh my gosh. Bart. Bart. That's right. Bart is our newest Patreon member, and Bart, your support, we appreciate Thank it 1,000%. Thank you so much. I don't know how many shows that we've seen Bart where we know he's oh, driven yeah. at least like an hour and a half to yeah. two hours to get there. And he rocks out. <laughs> right. And Bart's ready to party. He's ready to rock. Um, and uh, one of his kids is a sweet bass player. Yes. And Lisa loves to rock too. And it's just an awesome family. And Bart, 
Yes. Thank you very much for joining our Patreon community. Thanks, Bart. We super appreciate it. Yeah, and, and we, I'm excited for everybody to get to know Bart. That's right. So we'll see you on the Hangout there. And um, speaking of Patreons, we can't forget Dr. Ned. Ned! Dr. Ned's at the level of Patreon sponsorship where he gets a shout out in every single episode. To Dr. Ned, new Patreon Bart, and all of our Patreons, thank, thank you, you very much. Anybody else out there interested in joining this awesome community oh, yeah. of brilliant people, then you should <laughs> really check is. out OthersidePodcast.com slash donate, and we would love to get to know you. Please join us. Yes, and even if something bad happens, I'll look back and be like, well, but I did get that free burrito.